You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. If you've got a Bible, I'd love it if you could turn to Judges and chapter 4. We're doing a series called Autonomy. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is actually week 3, but Judge 4. There's basically been 80 years of peace, and now we're going to be looking at the story of Deborah. If you know anything about the book of Judges, you know that actually it covers two chapters, and I wish that I could read both to you, but I can't. There's chapter 4, which really tells the story of Deborah, and then if you've got a Bible, or I guess you've got an app, you slide it down. Chapter 5 is really a song. It's a poem, Uh, it's an expression of it, and I would try and talk a little bit about it. Just to put you in the mood so that you totally understand the whole picture, the book of Judges goes around this circle. I talked about this two weeks ago. Basically what happens is the people sin, they get thrown into slavery, you get some... um, guy that comes and oppresses them, they, they pray, they, they cry out to God. God sends a saviour, a judge, and then it goes silent. They sin, they get thrown into slavery, they pray, God sends a judge, then it goes silent. There has just been 80 years of silence before we read this. Verse 1. After Ehud died... The Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Cana, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Caesarea, and he, who lived in Harashoth, Hagoim, because he had 900 chariots filled with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried out to the Lord for help. Deborah a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinom, from Kadesh in Nephatal, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Sorry, boys, I'm struggling to concentrate. Could you just listen? Go take with you 10,000 men of Nathal and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sazira, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him, give him into your hands. Barak said to her, I, If you go with me, I will go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go. Very well, said Deborah. I will go with you. But because of the way you are going about this, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Zerah over to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtal. 10,000 men followed him, and Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites and descendants of Hoab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananin, near Kadesh. When they told Zazira the barrack, the son of Abom had gone to the Mount Tabor, Zazira gathered together his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him from Harashath, Hagarim, to the Kishon River. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, 
This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all the chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera abandoned his chariots and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harashan, Hagim. All the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, because there was friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber, the Canaanite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she put a covering over him. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is there anyone in there, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove, the tent, the, she drove the peg right through his temple into the ground, and he died. Just then Barak came by in pursuit of Zazira, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Zazira with the tent peg through his temples, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Cana, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Cana, until they destroyed him. Oh, golly, what a story. We need some help. Father, we ask that you would speak to us. We believe this is the word of God. And we're asking now that as we come and we sit and we listen that you would speak to us. What are tent pegs got to do with London? How how does this relate to us today? I pray our hearts will hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Actually, this, this whole sermon was perfectly teed up by Sam and what he read from Deuteronomy chapter 30. You see, what had happened is there'd been this thing, you can choose, you can make a choice, you can choose life or you can choose death. When you go into this land, what do you choose? Deborah was one that chose life. She knows God and she speaks with authority. She's very different to any of the other judges. The last one chose to go to war. Another one, if you were here last week, made his assassination plan. Basically, he had this knife stuck inside his his trousers, pulls it out and sticks it in the guy's stomach. But she is a woman of wisdom who counseled and guided the people. There's so many details that I'd love us to pick out and look at. Even the fact that she was sat by a palm tree. We know from scripture that this was a picture of prosperity. It was also a picture of leadership. So the fact that Deborah is by this palm tree, it's very clear that she is prospering and she is leading. But, and this is what I find fascinating about this judge more than any other, she not only rescues, but she rules the people. 
And in many respects, this judge, therefore, is the greatest picture of the coming king. I told you that what happened is the Israelites had been led by Moses and and then Joshua, and they've got this period, which is called Judges, before the king comes. And it's almost saying, well, this is what the king will be like. Deborah is the best picture of the coming king. He is a king that will rule you. And so what happens is when David comes, he's the ruler. And in many respects, she points to that more than anyone else in this book. But actually, if we're really honest, the picture of the Bible, the story of the Bible goes from Genesis right the way through. Actually, she is a picture of Jesus Christ because he's the ultimate rescuer and ruler. This is why we encourage people to get baptized in this church because what we're saying is Jesus not only rescues you, he wants to be your Lord and your Savior. We read in Isaiah, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. She was a picture in her time of one that rescued and ruled. I guess the other thing that we, we can't skip over, this was a woman, a mighty woman of God. We're not totally sure who her husband was. Some commentators are trying to work out, was, was she actually married to Barrett? We don't think so. Some are trying to work out what her husband's name was. We don't totally know. What we do know is Azira was a man who abused women. We know that actually he used to rape women and use them in an unwholesome way. And then what we discover is that God raises up a female judge and another woman by which to bring freedom. There's an irony in this story that we don't necessarily understand. You see, if I think about you know, tent pegs, I was trying to imagine how big this tent peg would be. I mean, it goes through his temple right into... I mean, this was a big thing, you know? In those days, putting up and down the tents was women's work. And so to grab this tent peg, put it on there and smack it right down... Isn't it funny, the guy that opposes woman is killed by a household appliance. I mean, it'd be a bit like now, you know, if he picked up, I don't know, an iron or something. God, there's a sexist thing. (laughs) Whips him with the iron or the ironing board, boom, and we suddenly say, well, when my mum was a kid, you know, I was a kid, that was what my mum did. I know it's all equality now. There's probably nothing I could describe as a female household appliance. I'm backpedalling quickly. (laughs) But that would have been the picture in those days. Oh, isn't this interesting? This man comes, he hates women, but actually God raises up this female judge. I believe there's many women who are going to do mighty things in this room. I'd love us to be praying for you at the end of this meeting. I don't want us to have a chapter like this and just suddenly think, oh, let's push it under the carpet. Let's believe God for great things of the women in this church. But the thing I wanted to have a a look at really is the whole thing. And if you pick it up five times in this chapter, the word hand is mentioned. And, And I think if somebody's trying to throw these things in there, what does it mean? How could we look at it? The first one is Jabin. The Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin. I'd love this church to be a little bit more Pentecostal if I really could. I've often told people, come on, 
I've told you before, and I'll tell you again, if you lean forward in your seat, you get a better sermon. (laughs) Don't believe me? Lean forward and you'll find it's true. I've told you, if you get the hallelujahs, amens going, you'll get a better sermon. I'd like to see a few hands this morning. Seriously, I'd like you to put your hands up right now. This is what we're thinking about today. That's fine. You can stick them down. Throughout this story, we find hands are mentioned. It's, it's bizarre because if the Israelites had fully obeyed God in chapter 1, this king wouldn't even have been alive. Because they were disobedient, this guy had a chance to come back. Many would say, the, the context of this, that this is the end of the Bronze Age and the start of the Iron Age. So therefore, to have 900 iron chariots was a bit like smart bombs and drones today. He was on the cutting edge of warfare, and they were afraid. We know that this was cruel and oppressive. We know that it lasted 20 years. It's not great news. You will be experienced. There will be some hands that you feel are against you in life. Why is it the boss at work just doesn't seem to give you a promotion after you tell everyone you're a Christian? You can almost feel, oh, God, there's some hands that are against me. The next hand we see is in verse 7. I will lure Sazira, the commander of Jabin's army and his chariots and troops to the river and give them into your hands. So basically we've got the hands of this guy that, that associates people and gets them against the people of God. And then Barak is raised up and basically say, come on, into your hands. Now, this is a surprising set of hands to be used by God. Because they, they mention his father's name, and we know that his father's name meant pleasantness. Yeah? We don't think, therefore, that his father was a warrior or a soldier. He probably wasn't one that had brought him up in some military contra- training, no military background at all. We know that 10,000 was a hopeless, weak army against 900 chariots. He didn't stand a chance. He seeks reassurance. Now, I can find it funny because I can look at this and you almost feel like Deborah's had to go at him, doesn't she? Come on, you weedy man. Get up and fight. And yet the best way of understanding this surely is looking at Hebrews 11 because Hebrews 11 lists the people of faith of the Old Testament and when it talks about Baruch, it talks about Baruch as the man of faith. And that actually he didn't want to go forward even looking at his own hands, he wanted to go forward knowing that God was with him. Maybe it was more of a prophetic statement than a rebuke. You see, faith is listening to God in every stage of life. Faith is showing courage in the face of overwhelming odds. Faith is being humble and not seeking honor, which actually was the role that Barak had in this story. I guess it's most clearly shown in the life of Jesus. Philippians 2, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant being made in human likeness. You see, ultimately, Barak was no match for Sazira and the 900 chariots. But Sazira was no match for God. And maybe Barak understood that. The next hand that we discover, if I'd have got you Pentecostal, you'd have all had your hands up by now, was verse 9. 
very well, said Deborah, I will go with you. But because of the way you're going about this, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sazira over to a woman. Now, I have to be very careful. I'm on thin ice already this morning. But in those days, to lose to a woman was shame. I know that we could think slightly differently today. But the thought that you went into battle and you lost to a woman was really a thing of shame. And so it's almost like they would be shamed because actually God would deliver. Now, I love this whole part of the story because I don't want to spoil it, but we've read the chapter anyway. You think it's going to be Deborah that's going to have the victory. She basically says to him, look, you go and you'll have this victory. And he says, I'll only do it if you come with me. She goes, oh, okay, I'll come with you. But you've got to understand now, the honor will go to a woman. And so we all think, Deborah's going to get the honor. Oh, but she's not actually the woman that it's talking about. How do we know that? Because in verse 21, you could then read about Jael, Heber's wife, who picks up the tent peg. Oh, suddenly there's this twist in this story. We thought it was going one way, but God, in his surprise, sent another pair of hands to do the deed. She gets the tent peg. She drives it through. I mean, again, for us, maybe we don't understand this. The the Israelites were 12 tribes. She was not one of them. Oh, you see, you pick that up. There was some connection because it was Moses' brother-in-law's family. But actually, they don't think they were part of the tribe. We know that they're part of the tribe of the Kenites. They weren't expecting these hands to come and do something for them. But actually, God takes a surprising thing and brings deliverance for them. The prophecy is true. The last lot of hands that I can see in this passage is verse 24. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, and the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger. And I love this, because I think surely it's a picture of us as a church. There's something about the people whose hands are united and together. I thought Mark was absolutely right. It was fantastic seeing so many people there at the, the, the comedy night. People that you think, oh, you haven't got any friends, you know, but they're just connecting with other people's friends. It was brilliant. I don't know what will get given today. But I know there's something about when we join our hands for God, who knows about the advance that happens. And so in many respects, if I read chapter 4, and I think about this victory and about this judge, and I think about this setting free, there's one thing I think about. It's the hands of people. But then if we pause slightly, this judge is slightly different to any other because this judge is not one but three basically we've got Deborah we've got Barak and then we've got Jael there's three and in some respect there's a clearer picture of God in chapter four than in any other in fact I would like to suggest the real hands behind the whole story are none of the people but God's so if I had chance to read Uh, The the whole of chapter 5, I would. I haven't. So I'm just going to pull out a couple of verses from chapter 4. It says in verse 9, For the Lord will deliver Caesarea over to a woman. It says in verse 14, This is the day that the Lord has given. There is another phrase in this chapter, The Lord goes out in front, which was exactly the same passage, the same phrase, Oh, the God went out and delivered them from the Egyptians. God went out and led them through the Red Sea. 
So although we could look at this and suddenly think, what could my hands do? Surely if we step back, we'd think, what could his hands do? In fact, ultimately, it's about being in the hands of God. So chapter 4 only mentions the word God four times. But in chapter 5, he's in virtually every verse. Chapter 4, if I remember, I was telling you, is the story of Deborah. Chapter 5 is the song of Deborah. Chapter 4 is really how we would describe history. Chapter 5 is really how we would describe theology. I think there's a huge lesson here. So often we can look at what we could do with our hands. What could we dream about for God? What could happen through a meetup or an alpha with our hands? But actually the whole story is, but what could God do? What are God's hands wanting to do? God blesses. God fights. God delivers. God gives victory. I mean, even, and and how many details, I'm short of time this morning, the fact is that they gathered these 900 chariots by the river. It obviously wasn't the season when they were expecting a flood, but God obviously supernaturally sent this flood and and washed away all these chariots. You think, what? Because the the hand of God was involved. God does not need our help, but he loves to have us involved. That's what I love about this. We must have two perspectives on life. One is, what do we do? What are our hands used for? The other one is, but God. But God. I'd like to spend more time praying this morning than speaking. I'd much rather say, ah. Almost prophetically, I know that sounds silly, rather than putting your hands up, I'd love you to sit on your own hands. I'd love you to think, actually, God, I don't want to go forward in this week and think about what I'm going to do. I'd love to go forward and think, what are you going to do? I'd love us almost to respond and say, God, I don't want to... Some of you are very, very gifted in this room. You could be gifted parents, you could be gifted teachers, you could be gifted... And it's easy to look at your hands. God, we want to say this morning, we want to look at your hands, not ours. God, you know, people in this room, they've they've earned good money. People in this room have achieved great things. They've got great degrees. Things are going well. It's so easy to look at our own hands. We almost want to sit on them this morning and say, God, we want to go forward looking at your hands. God, we want to go forward and believe for you. We don't just want to look back and think of the story about what we've done. God, we want to say, God, what are you doing? Okay. I also wanted to pray for us that we'd be a people that aren't rescued by God. We're also ruled by God. I think the challenge is just praying about it this morning. I think, oh God, I, I think, rescue me, rescue me. And I want us to come and say, God, rule us. Father, I want to pray for that this morning. I want to pray that, that we don't just turn to you in our trouble and say, rescue me. Lord, I thank you that we can come to you, whether it be our health or our finances. We can come to you about where we're living and our careers. We can come to you about all these things. But God, we don't just say rescue us, we say rule over us. God, we want to come this morning and say, God, would you be in charge? 
Where do we live? What job do we do? God, even with our finance this morning, we're saying, God, rule over us. We want to ask for that. In Jesus' name. I'd love to pray as well for all the women that would like prayer. So I know this is embarrassing because we could look around and work out who those, all the women are in the room. But if you think, you know what? I want to stand up. I want some prayer right now. There's no forcing you, but we'd, I'd encourage you to stand. And we would like to pray for the women in the room. So I don't the ladies that want some prayer. Just stand. Right, guys, I'm asking us all to pray out loud together. Pray a blessing on these women that God will do radical things to the women of this church. Yeah, Father, we do thank you for all the ladies that are in this church. Father God, we want to pray for radical women of God. We want to pray for those that lead. We want to pray for those that got wisdom and prosperity, oh God. We want to pray your gifting and your blessing over them. Lord, we want to pray that they're flying things for you, O oh God. Lord, I pray for spiritual gifts. Lord God, I pray for success in their week. I pray for intimacy with you. Oh God, I pray for them that are raising children. I pray for them that are in marriages. I pray for them that are in work and positions of responsibility. I pray for those that are leaders over others in the workplace. God, I pray for those that are creative and have got ideas and entrepreneurial. God, we want to pray for the women of this church. God, we thank you for this woman, Deborah. We thank you, God, you came and, and you used her to lead a people. Father, we pray, O oh God, your blessing upon all these ladies. In Jesus' name. Amen. Great, if you want to take a seat. I just wanted to lastly pray for people that are fearful. So I just wanted to give a little uh, confession or story. As I said, I was, uh, I was in Istanbul for the last two days, went out there to join this group that we're supporting. And um, yesterday, uh, this guy starts, there's another guy talking as well, he started doing a session all on fear. And uh, it's, I wouldn't describe myself necessarily as a fearful person, but as he started speaking, I just felt this pain in my heart. And it was getting, you know, maybe it was an hour session, I can't remember, but I could feel it worse and worse and worse like this. And I started getting fearful, and I started thinking that I was going to die. And literally, I'm sat there thinking, I don't think I'm going to go back home. I don't think I'll see Nikki again. Now, that seems a little bit bizarre thought. But if I can just lead you down a story for a moment, a guy that was a real spiritual father to me who baptized me as a teenager, about 10 years ago, one week after his 50th birthday, he was ministering in another nation. Those that don't know, it was my 50th about a week ago. This guy was ministering in another nation, collapsed, died from a heart problem, and never got home. I didn't realize, but suddenly, you know what? I'd let that fear get to me. So probably 10 years on, it wasn't a, a conscious thing, but subconsciously I'm thinking, golly, 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 I don't think I can get home. And then suddenly, you know, it's almost like I've got this going through my head. Why are you away ministering a year after your 50th birthday? Didn't you know what happened to your spiritual father? Honestly, I start thinking, maybe I should text Nikki right now. We just had a time where we confessed our fears and went in faith. So I must admit in the group, I stood up and said, look, 
I know this probably sounds really stupid. I've got this fear that I won't go home and see my wife, that I'm going to die before I get home. And they said, oh, come on, Pete, how do you break this? I said, you know what? I'm trusting God that that's just a fear, and I'm not going to be led by fear. Instead, I'm going to be trusting him in faith. I'm believing that I'm going to see her. I was due to get the tube home and then catch the bus, but I must admit, I got off the plane last night. I texted and said, pick me up from the station. (laughs) It's a God thing. It's not because I'm lazy. (laughs) I said to someone, you can feel me and touch me. I'm not a ghost. Now, we laugh about it, but I wonder how many people here, have, there's actually a fear that's gripped you from the past. And you suddenly think, poor, you know what? I'm fearful of the hand of man. I'm fearful of the hand of an enemy. But actually, God wants to take you out of that hand of fear this morning. And you suddenly think, oh, you know what? Something in my past, whether it's my parents, a brother, a sister, an experience, and you suddenly think, you know what? I've suddenly got a fear that... It's irrational. Mine probably sounds silly. You're laughing at me now and through the other side, but yours could feel like that. And we would love to pray for you. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to stand. We have a prayer team that's over by this banner at the end of the meeting. I'm going to be joining them. I haven't got permission. I'm just going to do it. And say, look, if you know, actually, I've got a fear, and that's impacted the way I think, then I would love us to pray for you this morning. Please don't leave without getting prayer. In fact, I don't know if I can wait. I'm going to pray for you right now. I'm not going to embarrass you. Let's just close our eyes. If this is you, God knows. Father, I thank you you come to set us free from fear. Lord, I don't know what just came over me yesterday, but I came and I stepped in and I thought, no, I'm not going to give in to that. I'm not going to believe that you can't protect me and watch over me. God, I believe this morning there will be others in this room. I believe you spoke that really clearly to me, that fear that I can't conceive, fear that I won't be a good mum, fear that I'll, I'll never be able to earn money, that I'm always going to be poor. Fear that I won't fit in and be accepted. And it's affected behavior. And instead we want to come by faith today and say, God, this is not what we are. This is not our view of you. Even in this, we don't want to look at our own hands. We want to look at your hand. We want to say, God, you're more than able. You're a God of love. You're our Father. You set us free. And so for any this morning that they think, you know what? Hmm, looking back on the last week or the last month, I realize fear has played a part. Fear of being alone. God, we want to come against that in the name of Jesus Christ. And we want to trust you. We want to look to you. As kids, we used to sing, he's got the whole world in his hands. We declare that again this morning. He's got the whole world in his hands. We will not give in to fear. In Jesus' name, amen.